today we're going to be considering uh, the final uh, the final movement in the nut in the flood narrative uh, and and this is the the uh, resetting of God's covenantal purposes with essentially a new humanity um, and then a repeat if you will of the fall uh, and uh, I think that there's a whole bunch of incredible things that we can draw from this text, but we're just going to be looking at Genesis chapter 9 today. Um, and as we've considered uh, the power of this particular narrative, the, uh, everything from God's regret uh, at the sinfulness of his own creation, uh, his, the, his desire actually to take that which he said is very good uh, it, it can be an overwhelming idea to think that God said this is very good and then turn around a few chapters later and say I regret what I made and I'm gonna undo it all but I think we actually miss the point when we put an overemphasis upon God's judgment in this particular narrative uh, for the serpent's seed has infiltrated and infected all of creation. You know, I had a great conversation uh, the other night with someone that was trying to get their head around spiritual realities, specifically demonic realities. And the way that I like to think of the demonic is to think of it in terms of something that is like a parasite. Uh, it is, it's, it's why I think it's so difficult at times to uh, be able to diagnose something spiritually because often there's something physical or mental going on at the same time and so like are we just fools and and you know picking on people that have mental health issues or is there really this thing that we would call spiritual oppression and I would say that all of us will experience spiritual oppression and we are told that all of the world lies under the sway of the wicked one but I believe that the enemy being like a parasite feeds on the weak, the ones that are already down. <laughs> uh, and in that reality, that infection, is what had taken over God's creation. And God is, this is not a story, I believe, primarily about God's regret and his judgment through the destruction of his creation by the flood, but I would argue that the narrative is primarily about God's patience and about his mercy and about his refusal to let go of what he intended through rebellious human instruments. And today's narrative proves that point because though Noah was declared to be righteous, the sole righteous man on the earth, as I shared with you before, Noah's righteousness was not sinlessness. Um, and even his blamelessness is not sinlessness. His blamelessness and his righteousness is that which is defined by his faith and his surrender to his creator. And we see that even those who are righteous and blameless still live in a fallen world, in fallen bodies, with fallen minds, and sin will knock on the door, and there will be times when we open the door to that reality. And so what I believe we have within these chapters is actually a robust picture of God's continued grace uh, and his, uh, his determination to not exist without broken, sinful men and women, boys and girls who have placed their trust in him. And that is a beautiful story that I think can get lost when we zoom in on the details of something like a flood. So in Genesis chapter 9, Noah and his three sons, their families, they have come out of the ark. God, Noah becomes a, it, even a picture of Jesus, if you will, for it is Noah is the one for the many and the many and the one, that it is his righteousness uh, that means that he becomes the conduit of God's salvation on the world. And, and it closes, the, the flood narrative closes with Noah actually creating a blood sacrifice um, which is an appeasing aroma to God, also pointing us forward to the ultimate sacrifice that comes to Jesus on the cross. It's a beautiful picture. 
And now the dry land, the new start, the new creation um, has begun. And I showed you last week um, these parallels of, of Genesis chapter 8 to Genesis chapter 1 of God recreating after his decreation. The power of God's ability to create out of nothing, to bring, to bring order out of chaos. And now we have the blessing upon Noah. And it begins here in Genesis 9, verses 1 through 7, 7 with what I would refer to as the covering of God or a, a true picture of God's graciousness. It's, it's three divine ordinances that are put forth in these first seven verses. And it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, very similar, actually exactly the same words as what we find in the, in the creation account back in Genesis 1 and 2. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heaven, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. This is something new. So there is a change in the relationship between man and creation uh, proclaimed in this verse, that there is a hostility that seems to have not been there before, before the fall between the animal kingdom and humanity. And I think it's interesting that the picture of the new heavens and the new earth, what are some of the prophetic words spoken, I don't think it's just um, allegorical or a metaphor, but I think it's a picture of of there will be a, a new kind of peace uh, in God's created order where it says, and the lion shall lie down with the lamb. And I, I think that this is a picture of the challenges what we're told in Romans. When we think of sin, uh, we tend to think of it as purely a human problem. But what we're told in Romans uh, chapter 8 is that all of creation groans awaiting its redemption. Uh, that there is by nature, that's why when I look at... Uh, when I look at naturalistic um, science uh, and the picture that we have of, if we were to, if I was to take a purely naturalistic view of the world, I watched enough, do you guys remember, for those of you old enough, you remember Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom? Uh, anyone under 30 does not know what I'm talking about, um, but it was, a, it was a TV show that was like, you know, just an animal TV show that'd be like on the, in Africa, and it would just show lions tearing up zebras and stuff. It was a very disturbing show as a small child. I really loved it, but it really gave you a vision of how unbelievably dangerous and violent living things are. Uh, that it is truly survival of the fittest. The, who is the king of that kingdom? It's whoever, whoever has the greater power to kill is to survive. I mean, it's just like, that's the brutality of creation. And I think it's interesting here that God is, as a part of his protection of humanity, um, is that there is, there is now a new relationship where human beings are the top of the food chain and they are the greatest threat to the created world as well. And that's, that's a reality that cannot be ignored nor avoided, that we were called to be shepherds of the world, to be uh, caretakers of the world, like gardeners of the world, but instead um, we are conquerors in a way that tends to wreak destruction and havoc. Everything we overcome actually seems to create a whole new set of problems that we didn't even see coming. I just finished reading C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man um, again, and that is a prophetic book that Lewis basically argues in it that, that modern man, he says, he says, these men, and he's critiquing the, the intellects of the age that have um, so perfectly um, separated the sacred from the secular and the damage that they were doing to the education system. He says, we think that they have big heads. It's not that they have big heads. It's just that they have no chest, which makes their heads look big. In other words, he's saying they have no heart. They have disconnected the head from the heart. And they have forgotten the holistic picture that has been. And he goes, I don't trust technological advance because every advancement doesn't seem to show its underbelly or the potential damage that is possible for another 30 years or another 50 years. And that has continued to play out. Darcy and I are watching a TV show that, that for the first time ever we were subjected to commercials 
because it was on Amazon Prime, and Amazon is going to promote things that it's connected with Amazon. And it was so disturbing. It was in a commercial for Alexi. Alexis, is that what she's called? Alexa. I don't even know her name, because I have Siri. And, I've, you know, Siri and Alexa don't hang out. Um, but in the, in the video, it was a child under a fort tent, you know, like when we used to build tents with our sheets under with Alexi, and Alexi's glowing on her face, and she's talking to her. I'm like, that is so... Who thought of this ad campaign? I've never, I feel like I'm watching like a bad horror film right now. Like this is insane. Like the new baby, you don't need babysitters. Like you don't want to hang out with your kids, just give them Alexi, it glows and talks to them. <laughs> like it's so terrifying. But I'm like, but we're, we're blind to the ways uh, that our ability, our desire to be image bearers of God, the moment we detach from the image of God is that we become gods that wreak havoc on the world and on ourselves because we're false gods. It's the ultimate kind of idolatry. Look what he goes on to say. He says, the beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So let's think really quickly through these three ordin divine ordinances. The first is the propagation of life. Be fruitful and multiply. God, yes, has brought about this incredible decreation to stop the spread of the parasite that was ruining creation. He has conquered, at least for a moment, the seed of the serpent. But what we're going to see is that God, is, we already looked at it last week, that the moment the flood stops, God says in his heart, the fact is, is that man's heart will always be set upon evil on this side of eternity. And so I choose in my patience, in my mercy, in my grace to not do this again. But here we have this command to now go out and to be fruitful. It's a blessing. And this is the third time that God blesses specifically these blessings Upon you, know, you, you see it in 128, you see it in chapter 5, verse 2. It is this call to be, thing, be creatures that imitate him, which is, what is God? Jesus says, I am the life and the resurrection. That we are called as image bearers when we are in right relationship with God to bring life to the world, not destruction. Now this is a direct command to bring life literally through having children. But I think that the, that the emphasis I am comfortable putting on, whether you have children or not, you are called to be a conduit of life. This covenant still stands, that we are to be a reflection of the light of God, the life of God, the love of God, which are all ultimately synonymous with one another. That when the world looks to us, we have to ask the question. It's that, that statement that the Apostle Paul makes when he says, what aroma are you leaving, essentially? That when we live by the aroma of Christ, that for some it is the aroma of life and salvation, and others, it, that being in the presence of a conduit of light is also the very thing that exposes the darkness in others or exposes the death in others. And this is why it is very rare that you get neutral responses to Jesus when Jesus is actually proclaimed. Because people will either be drawn to the life and drawn into the light, or they will be overwhelmed by the exposure and they will do what sin always does, which is push them into hiding. And that's the, the I think that this picture of be fruitful is another way of saying, be conduits of my life, of my light of my love. But then beyond 
this divine ordinance of the propagation of life, there is also the ordinance of protection of life. That life itself is sacred. And even in regards, just so you know, that there was no, uh, there was no divine command to eat animals before the flood. Whether they did or not, I don't know. But that's, this is the first time that this is stated. But there is something specific about this, that, that you're not to eat the flesh with the blood still in it. In other words, even the animal kingdom, wherever there is the breath of God, if you will, the life force of God in a living creature, he is the one who brings animation to all living things, that there is a sacredness to life. And even how we live amongst a world filled with crawling things and cattle of the field and birds of the air, that there is, there is a call upon us to treat the divine creation with a respect and that we respect life where it is found. We respect life where it's found. Now, I think that this is a really beautiful picture of how it is that we should be marked by, um, by the love of God. You know, they say like a sociopath, one of the markers of a sociopath when they're young is what? Do you guys know what it is? Mistreatment of animals. Um, that that, that a, a child that's comfortable torturing their pet cat or their dog, that's a bad sign. It's generally not a good sign. Um, but I think that this, is, this, this plays deeply into just our understanding that, that the world, uh, and this isn't a message that, you know, this is, there's, I have no propaganda here to, you know, talk to you about the importance of recycling. Uh, I'm just here to tell you that it's God's world and we are called to be good stewards of it, especially when it comes to living things. That it's meant to be honorable. Like, I would say that it's pretty, I'm pretty comfortable saying that from scripture that the killing of animals for food specifically is, would be God ordained, but the killing of animals for just purely for trophy? Uh. I, I, I would say pray about that. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, and some of you are like, I'm a big game hunter. Oh, hey, you know, where the scripture's silent, I say use, I, I say use spirit-filled wisdom. But this is one of the people ask me, like, if I, if I would have a gun, um, and I'm like, I'm like yeah, if I was a hunter, I'd have a gun. Uh, and by the way, I'm not a, I'm not a pacifist, uh, because if, someone came in here and threatened any of you, uh, if I had the ability to stop them, I would, <laughs> uh, without apology. Uh, however, handguns are made to kill people. And unless I'm in a job that is meant to protect people specifically, I don't really see the need for it. Besides, a shotgun's gonna be way more effective. So let's just be honest, maybe, a, I don't know, a pickaxe or, no, I'm just joking. I'm just, <laughs> Chelsea just looked at me and she said, stop, just stop. <laughs> I've always been preferential to ninja things. I've always wanted to preach and have like a ninja smoke bomb and just at the end, just throw it down and just be gone. <laughs> that would be amazing. When the message is going bad, like maybe right this second. <laughs> You're always getting into dangerous ground when you start talking about what you should kill and not kill. Because Americans are like, don't you tell me what not to kill. <laughs> the fact is, is that there clearly seems to be here a divine ordinance to respect the world. That is God's. Specifically in regards to living things. And why does God say, do not eat the flesh with the blood in it? That is specifically to point out that blood is the, is the life of, of the animal, of the human. And to not eat flesh with the blood in it is to honor the sacredness of life and to recognize the seriousness of what is being done. And I think that there is a, a real power in that. Um, now, there is something that he goes on to say, um, which I think is worth noting. And, the protection of life um, is also marked by this reality that if an animal kills um, 
his life will be required of him. If the human kills, murder um, is something that is different from eating food <laughs> or animals for food. Murder is the, is the violent taking of life that is driven by human emotion or carelessness. And that's why I say like we should think carefully of if you're going to take the life of any living thing, it's a serious decision. And what is the purpose behind it? What is, what is driving that desire? And I think that what God ordains here is that you have to keep in mind that capital punishment is established here in the, in the, the um, after decreation due to the wickedness of humanity, now it is put in place as a, as a means of protecting life. Listen, you can't just go about and kill someone and there not be consequences. Cause and effect will play itself out. And so God ordains laws that are meant to preserve life. And the preservation of life uh, here is specifically, if you take a life, your life will be required of you. And that is a, I feel like that's a relatively good deterrent, generally. You know, an example of this right now, um, which is derived from secular thinking that is built upon the idea that there is no God and that human beings are innately good. And if we actually played into the innate goodness of people, um, we would actually, and we, and we got away from uh, punishing people for crimes, there's two ways that our society seems to do that now. And that is by reimagining what a crime is. So it's not a sin if we define it as something that is acceptable. It's not a crime if we say that it's, that it's okay. So what's one of the big movements? What was, Oregon has been the big testing ground. And I just read this article in the LA Times uh, just a couple weeks ago that was talking about progressive states that were watching Oregon and its decriminalization of all drugs, including fentanyl. Fentanyl being legalized, in my opinion, is essentially a secret way of killing unwanted people in our cities. It's literally giving someone a loaded gun and saying, just put it at your head, um, you'll feel better if you do. Because it kills people instantly. It is so dangerous and it is so addictive and our city is filled with people that are moving here. There isn't just Portland's unfortunate people that end up on the streets, but Portland has become a mecca for people that have serious opiate addictions to move to because they can do their drugs all day long without consequences. And I feel all under the name of compassion and the desire to not criminalize hard drugs, what we actually are doing is killing these people that deserve more than that. They deserve, they deserve to actually be treated with the dignity of, of we want what's best for you. And sometimes what's best for someone is not allowing them to do something that will kill them. And so it's maddening to me when I see people on the street waving around like they're already half dead because they're on a mixture of fentanyl and meth and we think that we're helping them by just giving, by not, not killing us. Well, one of the things that that article said is that Oregon has failed miserably, that no progressive state in America is gonna do it because we thought that if we just got rid of punishing it and increased the amount of money for putting people into, into mental health and rehabilitation centers, that people would go through rehab. We have less people going through rehab now and more people dying every day from, this, from these drugs because these drugs are so powerful, there is no ability to make conscientious decisions unless they've been clean long enough to think clearly about what they ought to do. And so I, I think this is an incredible picture of the nature of, of, of there is a place for law. And law shows us all of life is actually controlled by laws, laws of the universe, laws of society, and those laws actually, those parameters are the thing that actually creates real freedom. 
and the idea that freedom can only be experienced if there is an eradication of laws is anarchy. And anarchy can only lead to chaos. Because when we as Christians, if we could only hold tenaciously to the, to the understanding that, yes, it's true, you cannot legislate morality. But at the same time, we need to have a much more realistic vision of human behavior. Human beings, left to their own devices, will always bring death into their lives. Because sin is the three-letter word that nobody wants to talk about anymore. And I think that this is why God allows for a severe, a severe response for a severe action is meant to protect life, not to create a free-for-all so that lots of people could be executed. That's not the goal. Um, and this is why Peter and even Jesus warned, hey, be careful. If you live by the sword, you might lose your life by the sword. Because the Roman government will be executed if you take life. Uh, that was the reality uh, of, of the thing. And even today, yeah, you might not get the death sentence, but if you take a life, you're not free to take a life. If you take a life, you'll end up in prison. Um, but every time we eradicate uh, laws that are meant to protect life, we see, we're seeing here in our city, the outcome is not more life, it's more death. It's more death. That's the outcome. I'm not here to give you any answers to the dilemma that our city has today, but I'm just here to show the theological framework to snap us off of that and to get us back to the actual function of the law and the foundation, which is the lives that come through the law. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, I just want to remind all of us that we all have so much more than we think we do. And the more we realize that, the kinder and gracious we will be. my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood this is why I believe it was a global flood and not just a local flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth and God said this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living thing that is with you for all future generations I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, speaking of a rainbow, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. I love that. This is God's, it's the only time you see a covenant with creation itself. It's not just a covenant with man, but it's God's covenant to not destroy what he has created. That he will never destroy what he has created in this way again. And the picture of the rainbow, I think, is, is a fascinating one. Uh, you know, the, the rainbow is, is a symbol that's it's, it's a classic symbol for children. It's become a symbol that's utilized for all sorts of things, but we must remember that it goes back to this. It is God's covenantal promise with creation that he will not destroy it. Um, I think even more powerful is the, is the image of a symbol. I read this book once by one of the 
he is the smartest of all the Inklings. So if you guys have ever, you guys know who the Inklings are, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Token, uh, uh, Dorothy Sayers was a part of the Inklings for a little bit. Uh, one of my personal favorites, Charles Williams, who's probably the, one of the least known, but the least known is actually considered the smartest by both Token and Lewis, and that is Owen Barfield. And Owen Barfield was a philologist, um, and he wrote a really incredible book um, called Saving the Appearances. And it's a, it's a book on the history of idolatry, but it's also a book on how we understand the world through language um, and how ancient worlds, uh, the ancient world before, and what he means by that is the world before enlightenment, um, before Cartesian thought had taken root and there was a separation of the sacred and secular, that words carried with them meaning, like if you said the word sun, it would hold both express uh, meaning of the sun that shines upon us, but it would carry with it layers and layers of meaning that would speak to the spiritual world, to light, to, to God's goodness, to all these things. And that's how the ancient world, he argues that their language was far more sophisticated than ours because there was no division between the sacred and secular. When they said something, they meant a whole plethora of things by it. It's one of the reasons that people struggle so much with understanding scripture is because there are layers and layers of meaning um, upon very simple words. Why the Gospel of John is so difficult to teach because John uses language that children know. In the beginning was light, and the light was the light of the world. And it's like all these very simple, this simple language, but he means so much by it. And it's meant to have layers and layers of meaning. Well, one of Barfield's uh, uh, points in Saving the Appearance, he uses the illustration of the rainbow and the rainbow is something that we all see, but is it really there? It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating question because it's like it's something that we're declaring is real, but it actually has no substance and it cannot be touched. Did you ever chase a rainbow when you were a kid? And what was at the end of the rainbow? A pot of gold. And that's true, but nobody's ever been able to get to it. I'm a man who loves my, my fairy tales. <laughs> no, the point, the point is, is a really profound one because I think this actually speaks even to the nature of God of that which can be touched, um, that which can be experienced tangibly with the senses. The rainbow is only something that can be, be experienced with one sense, which is the eyes. But, but beyond that, um, it, it's, it, is, it carries almost this spiritual reality of, of something that cannot be handled Cannot, you cannot go up to it. Um, and it requires almost a certain level of belief. Uh, and, and in other words, there's, there's something mystical about it. We all, but we all know it because we've seen it. Um, but we can't prove it. We can't taste it. We can't touch it. And I think that there's a real beauty in that kind of imagery of the, of the sacred, the God, because I think that the rainbow is meant to remind us again and again of the God who no man has seen at any time but he is the God who has not lost his grip, not only upon creation, but he has not lost his grip on you. He has not lost his grip. And whether you feel his grip or not, whether you hear his voice or not, I promise you he is speaking his love for you into your life every day. And what you need to learn how to do is to attune your heart and your mind to that reality that the world has so successfully silenced in our secular age that God is speaking to us, that he cares about us, that he knows you and is intimately engaged. And the promise that he made over creation can be taken personally. It is a promise made over you. He is not a God who has come to destroy. He has come to seek and save that which is lost. And this is why we are told in John 3:16, for God so what? Love the world. And that word world is not just the planet, it's speaking of the cosmos, but it's actually more importantly speaking of the center of the cosmos because everything in this created world is here for you. I believe the universe, some people ask me if I believe in aliens and I'm like, well, it's not out of the realm of possibility for God to create life on other planets, but I actually don't think there is. And the reason I don't is because I think that actually that's the, the ultimate picture of we are meant to reflect on the vastness and endlessness of the universe, something that God spoke into existence and he did all of it just for this insignificant little dot in the 
universe called Earth. And even more importantly, the more insignificant little dot on that little dot, the Earth, you. All of this created just to demonstrate that I could create anything I want, but actually I created it all because, because of my own sovereign purposes, I have determined to not exist without you. And that is profound, that God loves you. Yes, God can love creatures on another planet if he so chose to create them. I love the sci-fi sci trilogy by Lewis. It's a profound exploration of God working through alien civilizations, whatever. But I actually think that the center of God's creation is man. And all I can say is this. If I, I, I feel like I've got pretty good argumentation for this because God became what? A man. And he will continue to be a man for all of eternity because of us, for us. That's the heartbeat of the gospel. That's why I reject the idea that all religions lead to the same place because Jesus, it's, he is the key to the house. And if any key in the world opens the door, it's not a safe house. The fact is the one way reality is the, in the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus is what creates the possibility of an inclusive understanding of God's love for his creation. He is personal and knowable and he loves you and he wants you to be in relationship with him. His covenant, every time you see a rainbow, I wish we'd go back to what it was intended for, which is to speak of the mysterious God who no man has seen at any time and his incredible care and concern and patience for it, not only a rebellious humanity, but a whole creation that has been infiltrated by the parasite of sin. And Jesus has already defeated it. And now we await the final climax, which is the return of our King and the restoration of all that is wrong so that we can once again enter into no hostility between man and the animal kingdom, no hostility between man and man, but now there will be a peace that reigns forever. And God himself is the source of our light and our love and our common affections. It's a powerful picture. Well, that's all the goodness of God, but what about God's righteous one, Noah? Well, here's where the story gets a little bummer. In Genesis chapter nine, verses 18 through 23, it says, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth was dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil. That is, he is a farmer. And he planted a vineyard, and he drank the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. What we're told here is, <laughs> this is an incredible turn in the narrative, for we've been seeing this parallel all through the flood, the flood narrative with Genesis 1. And here now we see the parallel with Genesis 3 in the fall. Noah eats of the fruit in a way that actually brings, brings sin in. What's the outcome of his sin? Nakedness, uncovering, shame, and even the, the sin of Noah becomes the sin of his son. Uh, and the impact that we don't we don't violate the law of God in isolation. We don't sin in a vacuum, that everything we do has cause and effect. And the things that we do impact what others do. Um, and we forget this responsibility to be fruitful and to be, and to be conduits of life and how quickly we can become a conduit of death even when we're righteous and blameless. I once heard a preacher, a very, very well-known, very respected, American evangelical preacher who 
gave a very, very dangerous and I think unbiblical message around, uh, and, and, and I say that uh, with fear and trembling because I think he's an incredible Bible teacher, but I think he's dead wrong in this area, which is the idea that if you're truly born again, you will never backslide. And I'm like, well, I don't know what universe you live in, dude, but you clearly got a whole posse of people around you to do your dirty work and you're not living real life with people to say something as stupid as that because I can't even get out of bed without backsliding. Uh, and so I, I think I'm like, either I am like a complete charlatan, my gut tells me I'm just normal, uh, um, or this guy is deeply deceived. And what I found was that when I listened to him every day, it didn't take very long for me to constantly question whether I was saved or, or at all because he'd be like, May I, say, I, remember, I remember him sending a pamphlet to my house. I like this guy so much. I had his own study Bible, and he sent me a pamphlet called Examine Yourself. And it was questioning all of this idea around, like, what we call backsliding, he argues, is just you never were, you just aren't elect. You weren't chosen. And I'm like, well, that's, how could it's only chosen people that feel like they're chosen? I never understood that. Um, you never hear someone not elect claim that doctrine is true. Uh, so I, 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 was, I was deeply troubled by it because that's not the testimony of Scripture. Noah right here is righteous and blameless before God. He plants a vineyard, and the first thing he does is he makes wine, which is the first mention of wine in Scripture. And let me ask you a question. Does the Scripture forbid the drinking of wine? Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I'm not a teetotaler. But yes, scripture permits wine. The first miracle that Jesus does is he makes wine. But does the scripture permit drunkenness? No, in fact, there are endless passages of warning in the Old Testament and the New Testament that you are not to be drunk. Um, now, it makes sense as a person who has been drunk my share of times, uh, I understand when you actually look at Paul's passages around the difference between being drunk and the difference between being filled with the Spirit is that when one is drunk, truly drunk, they are no longer in control. So the question is, is what is in control? If you've ever been blackout drunk and your friends tell you all these things you did, like, well, who was in control when you were doing those things? You'll say, the alcohol, maybe, but I think there's something deeper than that. I think there's a spiritual reality of that. I think this is one of the questions that come up around people asking about everything from weed to alcohol. And here's the thing. I love, I love a good glass of wine. I like a drink. I have a long history of alcoholism in my family. Alcohol killed my father. Alcohol and drugs killed my father. Um, and so God's good creation Sin, in its essence, is always taking that which is good and using it in the wrong way, at the wrong time, for the wrong purposes. <laughs> um, or I would say, taking that which is good and being excessive with it. Nothing is good when it's done excessively. And Darcy will be a test. My greatest weakness as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, is that I am absolutely obsessive about everything. I have turned Bible reading into sin. And I, I'm not joking, because I'm that obsessive. I remember in the early days, I mean, Darcy and I got in huge fights because all I wanted to do was read my Bible. And she's like, that's great, but you still have to live life. You can't, and, then, and, and it's extra ugly because it was all spiritual practices. So it was easy for me to spiritualize my obsessive behavior my taking something that is good and actually going at it in a way that was not good. And it didn't matter how good it was for you guys who maybe were on the receiving end of my ridiculous study habits if it left me a bad dad and a bad husband. But man, how many pastors in churches have had just terrible children because they were terrible dads because their first love was not Jesus, but their ministry for Jesus. So 
let me just say, like, it's easy to point out Noah's sin here, but sin is sin, and it always kind of functions the same way. And that is, we take good things, and we overuse it, we misuse it, we obsess around it, we, we take things that we're t at the wrong time, in the wrong way. It's because at the end of the day, what really sin is, is just us playing God. Us deciding and choosing for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. When I shall go and when I shall not go. When I shall get up and when I shall lay down. What I should read and when I don't read. We decide for ourselves and we live in a society that we have been primed to believe that is the only way actually to live. And so even as Christians, we always will have a question mark in the back of our head. We will always be uncomfortable with the idea of submission because that our culture is uncomfortable with the idea of submission. And we need to understand that we are products of our culture. And I think about that, I was struck by that, like, man, I am an all or nothing person. So when I'm given to life giving things, I can be quite fruitful. But even then, I can be still really unhealthy because of that obsessive nature of not having balance. I was just, Darcy and I just had this conversation recently. It's like, it's why I do counseling. It's like, I need help cognitively. My disposition is not one of discipline, it's drivenness. I just don't know what to do if I'm not creating something. And so, and that can get me in trouble and it can also lead to great victory, but it also can lead to a lot of heartache. And I think that this is the nature of what I call mixture. We are all mixture. Everything we do, still there was going to be an undercurrent of sin at play. I don't care how close to Jesus you are. And it's very easy for us to spiritualize um, it's actually, I would argue, it's far more difficult to recognize sin when it masquerades as spirituality. I'm quite comfortable saying that leading a church has led me to more spiritualized sin. Sometimes I'm like, I know why it says very few should teach, um, and the judgment will be more harsh, because it is so challenging, because when you're preaching Jesus, people get saved, you're like, I must be golden with Jesus. But you can be totally a heretic and God still use you. I would say the usefulness of your ministry is never the guarantee that you're all right with God. Um, and so, so knowing Jesus is the most important thing. At the end of the day, do I know him? Am I walking with him? Am I hearing his voice? Am I recognizing my own obsessive behavior and my brokenness? And for me, the best way to conquer those things is to continually confess them to bring them into the light. So I wrote out a list of everything I did wrong last week. I'm gonna read it to you right now. <laughs> I watched this movie, no, I'm just <laughs> um, This is a reality. So what is the picture here? Noah takes his job. I think this is a really interesting thing. Um, it's, it, it challenges us. We were talking about doing a message on generosity recently. And I was like, I realized that I can actually speak to that theme out of this text. Because I think that our lives, when lived for, when we let our, Noah's just come through the flood. He's clearly let his guard down. And he has taken his work, and instead of utilizing it to be a blessing on others, he utilizes his work to feed his own appetite, to escape from all of the things. I'm sure the guy's got PTSD. He just lived a long time in a boat with a lot of animals. It had to have been very stressful. Uh, I, I think that, I mean, when you think about what Noah just did, it's like, have I not earned this? I think is the common language. I deserve to be able to turn off my brain tonight. I deserve a couple drinks. I have, like, I work too hard. I need to be able to relax. Rest is an important part of human existence. That's true. But our work is not meant to be primarily a blessing for us. It is primarily meant to be the means by which we bless others, which is where we will always find our truest blessing. So when we take our work, what we do, how we make our living, how do we actually, are we like Noah? where it's just spent upon self in a way that we wake up feeling guilty and shameful at our carelessness and our lack of stewardship. If we were to be exposed with what we do with what God has given us, I can think of so many ways. I love, I think growing up in 
significant poverty. I feel like two kinds of people come out of a background of serious poverty. When you don't grow up with a dad and you grow up, you know, single wide trailer boy like I did, and you were very aware that your friends had cash to buy candy and you only could buy candy with food stamps and be constantly made fun of, and you want the Air Jordans, but you get the volume shoe source plastic versions, which you're better off just not having them at all. Um, I, like all of these things where you're constantly, what it led me to is a, a person of excess, a person who like more is more. It's almost a way of like living out every, everything that was withheld from me as a child. Uh, other people, it can become a source of deep frugality when they get older. I've got to protect what is mine. And both sides are terrible. Uh, a person that just spends endlessly on themselves and a person that, that just puts it all in the bank for a rainy day. And both, of, both people are suffering from the same thing, a lack of generosity. And what we want to be is a people that are marked by a generosity that God is my provider. I am here to steward the life that he has given me. And he owns everything I have. In the Old Testament, the call was to give a tenth, a tithe. The New Testament doesn't have that same language. It just says that God loves a generous giver, a cheerful giver. And I think that Noah's ending up drunk and naked, exposed before his boys, is a picture of taking what God has given you and selfishly just using it for self, and it's not going to lead to life. So my point, the whole point of the entire sermon is, when you take what God has given you and you use it on yourself, you might wake up naked. That's <laughs> not the point. <laughs> In front of your children. And so I just don't want that for you guys. <laughs> what's the point? The point is, is that what's the point of sin? The picture that, that is used here of Noah is the picture, the spiritual picture that we have in Genesis 3. They were naked and ashamed and they hid. And I think that that is a, a profound reality of what's being played out here. And I, and I felt those, those same tendencies of taking what God has given me, misusing it, abusing it, and then feeling exposed and wanting to hide. <laughs> That's what happens. Or worse, feeling exposed in front of people I love and leading them into behavior that does not honor Jesus. And that is the most shameful an embarrassing aspect of our sin, which is why the best we can do when we go there is to be quick with my kids when I failed uh, as a father, and with my wife when I fail as a husband, and with you when I fail as a pastor, the best thing I can do is to say, Lord, I have sinned against you, and to my congregation, or to my wife, or to my kids, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Just get it out into the light so that you can move forward. But what happens is it piles up and it just makes us, we double down and we hide and then we feel isolated and not known and alone and God's voice becomes more and more distant. What I appreciate about what Noah does is it's something that's addressed immediately, but not without its consequences. Because what we're told is that Ham, who's the father of Canaan, sees his father's nakedness. Now, in the Hebrew, it says it, the word see means something deeper. I am not comfortable with where um, there has been, uh, actually among, among many rabbi scholars, it was the idea that some kind of um, sexual act was done to Noah by him. That is definitely reading between the lines. It does not say that, but it does say that there was a voyeurism that happened. Like he was taking pleasure in his father's drunken state. It's like a kid, like, like, oh my God, come in here, you gotta see mom, like check her out, she's totally drunk and passed out naked, like it's taking pleasure in another's sin, another's brokenness. So I don't think that, I, I don't believe that there was any sexual intent here. Uh, at least, if there was, the scripture doesn't say it, so let's not read that into it. Let's just take it for what it is. He exposed his father's nakedness. And the other two brothers were not comfortable with that. And what they did is there was a refusal to look upon their father's sin, and they walk in backwards with a blanket and cover him. It gives us an incredible picture of how it is that we are to deal with sin with one another, is that there were only two options with sin. Um, uh, and that is absorb it 
by covering it, like the two older brothers, or you do what Jesus did, and you get down and you wash the feet of your brother and sister. But judging someone or going out and talking about someone else's brokenness, that's the sin of Ham. Now, the Canaanites, the reason many believe that there was something more going on is because the Canaanites became known for their sexual depravity. But I think that has more to do with this idea of just doing what we want and living at the expense of others, which is often what follows along with that is violence and sexual immorality and all that goes along with it. A self-absorbed society will be a violent society, will be a a sexually promiscuous society because self-absorption and self as the center of God is always opening up a Pandora's box and the human heart is evil and wicked uh, um, and set upon these things all the time, which is why we need the intervention of a new heart, a new spirit, and a reliance not upon ourselves but upon the God who in his mercy has created us for his pleasure. And our pleasure is found in knowing him and bringing pleasure to him by being conduits of light and mercy and grace in other people's lives. So I think that this is a profound picture not only of how quickly our lives um, can become about us, leading us to behavior that, um, that leaves us exposed and ashamed or even leading us to behavior that actually plays out in the people we love the most, creating Nothing hurts more than to see your children do things. Hey, I've, I've actually talked to parents like, oh my God, I didn't think I had a foul mouth. And then my baby like said this, you like said the F word in front of me. I'm like, did you ever say it? Like, yeah, I realized when I was working outside, like it kind of slips out sometimes. And your, your baby's like a parrot, you know? <laughs> they just, <laughs> and, and it's all cute and fun when it's two. You're like, oh my gosh. That's crazy that you just said that until you realize that you're the one that said it in front of them. Um, I mean, that, seeing that happen, we, we, it's, a, it's a hard thing when you see your ugly behavior being manifested in your kids. Or your, and, and the best way to deal with those is to not hide, but to quickly bring it into the light and address it. But this is the reality is that our sin tends to beget sin, and the outcome of sin is what? It's death. The outcome of sin is death. And look what it goes on uh, to say in the closing. It says, when Noah awoke from his wine and he knew what the youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be a servant. And after the flood lived 350 years, all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. It's fascinating that Noah brings condemnation. Uh, It seems like Canaan ends up carrying the weight of his father's sin. But what I want you guys to understand is that every person is judged by God for their own lives. And Noah will give an account for his carelessness with what God has given him, but it's not Noah's sin that creates the problem. Noah will go down in history as a man of faith and a man after God's heart, which means that Noah was marked by a continual and perpetual repentance and acknowledgement of what he has done wrong. We may not have it here in the text, but that's the reality of what righteousness in. Canaan, um, in the history of Canaan, will be marked by one who is unrepentant, of their sin, whose sin not dealt with meant it bled into an entire nation. And that is insane when you think that what we do can not just impact one person, but can impact the history of persons within that lineage. And that is a profound weight that I I can't speak to, like, seriously enough. Like, what you do, there's a lot of parents in this room how you live and how you love and how you, how you are honest about your brokenness before your kids and how you, if you rule your house by grace, these things have an impact on the heritage um, that you leave. It's, it is your legacy of how you lived out the blessing of God to be, to be a life giver um, is played out in your kids. But when your home is not ruled by grace, 
and it's ruled by law, and, and it's ruled by contingency, and it's ruled by, I'm disappointed in you, and you have failed me, and you think, I've seen parents where they say over the kids, like, why are you being such a weirdo? Why are you being so stupid? Like, we don't understand all of those words are prophetic words that speak realities into our children's lives. My stepdad's favorite term for me was half-ass. And I have lived with that sense that I'm not a man who can complete anything. And it's taken me my entire lifetime to be like, I don't have to be defined by that, by that phrase. But that is the power of what we have the ability. We can speak realities into people's lives. And here you have a reality um, that is played out because, because there seems to be in him a lack of repentance. The condemnation is a prophetic word spoken over the reality of his descendants, which will become actually a thorn in Israel's side later. And here we have, once again, the picture of a gracious, patient, loving, preserving God in the light of fallen, broken, human conduits by which he is not content to exist without. And that's why the gospel is such good news, because God knows that we are broken. He knows we are impotent, and this is why he has sent his son. The gospel is God come down to us. God come down to you. And Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary. All you are weary with your hiding and your, and your feeble attempts at proving to me your savability. Just be honest about who you are and lay it at my feet. The righteous man, the righteous woman is not the one who does everything right, but it's the one who casts themselves in dependence upon the only one who is. That's the beauty of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray.